The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Fifty-one-year-old Ronald Platt was thrilled to be invited boating with his dear friend David Davis. Davis was a semi-retired Canadian businessman who lived in Woodham Walter, a village about 80 kilometers northeast of London in the English county of Essex, with his young wife and two beautiful daughters. Ronald and Davis booked a room at the Steam Packet Inn in Totnes in preparation for their adventure. Davis had told Ronald that he needed help sailing his boat to Essex, and Ronald was all too happy to assist his friend. On the morning of Saturday, July 20th, 1996, the pair set sail in the English Channel near the Devon Resort town of Torquay on Davis's 24-foot yacht, the Lady Jane, and Ronald was never seen alive again. Join me now as we take a look into a case that crosses continents and involves a devious international con man with numerous false identities. As we unravel the twists and turns of this astonishing case, you'll learn about watches that tell much more than time, unsettling incest, and the cold-hearted murder of a trusting friend. In 1991, Ronald Platt, a divorced TV repairman, was rarely in contact with his family, and he was struggling to make ends meet. People who knew Ronald often described him as hapless, trusting, and gullible, even though he was a former soldier. One thing Ronald did have going for him was his long-term relationship with Elaine Boys. They had lived together for many years and had forged a close and loving relationship. By Elaine's estimation, Ronald was a very quiet, calm, and gentle man. He always treated her with warmth and affection and was a good partner to share her life with. Ronald didn't have many keen interests, but he loved electronics and precision engineering. His one prized possession was a second-hand, 25-year-old Rolex Oyster Perpetual watch. His partner, Elaine, claimed he loved his watch so much he never took it off. He even wore it in the shower. Elaine classified Ronald's watch obsession as just one of his many enduring and slightly quirky qualities. In the spring of 1991, when Elaine was working as a receptionist, at a fine art auctioneer house, the charming and engaging David Davis strolled in. They hit it off instantly, and soon after, 
Elaine introduced Ronald to Davis. They also became fast friends, in part due to their shared love of Canada. Davis said he'd enjoyed a successful business career in Canada, and Ronald has spent part of his young life in Canada, loving it so much that he adorned his right hand with a large maple leaf tattoo to commemorate his favorite country. Davis surprised Ronald and Elaine when he offered them jobs. He wanted to give them a share in his financial company, the Cavendish Corporation. Davis explained his ex-wife from New York was chasing him for alimony, even though she was a popular doctor. She was greedy and after his money, so he had to take precautions. He said by making Elaine and Ronald directors of his company, they could help him protect his interests by ensuring his name did not appear on any of the paperwork. Elaine and Ronald enthusiastically agreed to Davis's proposal, as the couple was typically short on money and any possibility of additional income was always welcomed. Elaine traveled around Europe to view properties for Davis that he said he was interested in purchasing as an investment. During her many trips, she deposited money in many bank accounts she opened for Davis. But Davis never did close a deal on any of the investment properties Elaine was sent to check. In 1992, Davis presented Elaine with a Christmas card that contained a note promising to buy her and Ronald two tickets to Calgary, Canada in February of 1993. Although Elaine was surprised that David expected the couple to pack up their life and move to another continent in only two months, Ronald was beside himself with joy when presented with the opportunity. Finally, his dream of returning to Canada was coming true. He talked Elaine into agreeing to the generous offer, and the pair started to make preparations for their trip. Before Ronald and Elaine set off to Canada, however, Davis explained to them that they could remain directors of his company if he got rubber stamps made with their signatures. Then he could sign official forms even in their absence. Davis said this type of thing was done all the time in the business world and was no big deal. He also required Ronald's driver's license, birth certificate, and credit card to back up the signature if needed. Ronald and Elaine happily complied. In February 1993, Ronald and Elaine boarded a plane to Calgary and set off to start a new life. Things, however, did not go as planned. Although Ronald was obsessed with Canada, the couple found Calgary to be extremely cold and employment hard to come by. Elaine found herself disillusioned with Canada within six months. When she returned to England to attend a family wedding, she decided to stay and broke things off with Ronald. A broken-hearted Ronald still gave it his all to make things work in Canada. He even moved to Vancouver, thinking that the moderate weather and promising job market on the coast might be a better fit for him. But in 1995, after two long, difficult years, Ronald ran out of money, gave up on his dream, and returned to England. What Ronald did not realize was that returning to England 
put his life in grave danger. As soon as Ronald had left for England, Davis had assumed Ronald's identity and had been living under the name Ronald Platt for two years. In September 1994, Davis and his family had moved to Little London Farm in Woodham Walter, Essex. Davis joined a business consulting firm and told everyone he was Ronald Platt, the cousin of soccer star David Platt. When Davis discovered Ronald had returned to England and moved to nearby Chelmsford, he became very concerned his cover was about to be blown. Davis invited Ronald to join him and his family in Devon for a short holiday and to assist in moving Davis's 24-foot yacht, the Lady Jane, to Essex. Ronald was all too happy to reconnect with his old friend and to help him out in any way he could. The pair set out on the morning of Saturday, July 20th, 1996. Davis and Ronald sailed the Lady Jane out into the English Channel from the Devon Resort town of Torquay. When the vessel was around four miles out to sea, Davis struck an unsuspecting Ronald over the head with a ten-pound anchor, tied the anchor to the unconscious man's belt, and tipped his body overboard into the English Channel. He then calmly sailed the ship back to port and continued on with his life as Ronald Platt as if nothing had happened. Because the real Ronald Platt was somewhat of a loner, with few friends and no close family, no one reported him missing for six weeks. On July 28, 1996, a fisherman named John Kopik wasn't having much success. His first haul was disappointing so he set sail six miles out to an area rarely fished, known as the Ruffs, off the coast of South Devon. He weighed down the nets so they sank to the seabed and would catch any fish along the bottom. After about an hour had passed, he hauled the net in and experienced a first in his 30-year fishing career. When Kopek pulled in the nets he discovered a body amongst his catch. He knew that a floater was considered a bad omen. Some fishermen would even drop a body back into the water and pretend they had never found it. If you called it in, all the fish on board would be condemned and the day's wages were lost. Regardless, Kopik did the right thing and called the Coast Guard and reported the body he had found. An autopsy was performed on the body on July 30th. The unknown male was wearing a blue and white checkered shirt, leather belt, green corduroy pants, and brown leather shoes. Closer inspection revealed a tattoo on the back of his hand that at first was thought to be a cluster of stars. Bruises were found on his left hip and lower leg, and a four-inch gash was evident on the back of his head. This suggested that a blow to the head likely knocked him unconscious, but the actual case of death was drowning as water was found in his lungs. At first, the authorities believed that the man had fallen off a boat and had drowned accidentally, or perhaps he had even committed suicide 
but everyone involved did think that it was odd that no one had been reported missing. Just when the police were running out of ways to identify the body, one of the officers noted that the man had been wearing a Rolex. He explained that if it was a genuine Rolex watch, it would have a unique serial number engraved on the watch case. Even more, if it had ever been sent in for servicing, Rolex would likely still have the owner's name on file. Even though the body had been badly decomposed when it had been discovered, the watch appeared to have remained watertight. Maybe it could offer some insight into the unknown man's identity. When the authorities contacted Rolex and had the watch inspected, they learned that it did have a serial number and that Rolexes are engraved with a specific marking on the inside of their case back every time they are serviced. As a result, the police were able to determine that the Rolex Oyster Perpetual wristwatch worn by the body netted by the fisherman was repaired and serviced twice in the 1980s by jewelers located in Harrogate. The owner of the watch at the time was listed as Ronald Joseph Platt. The police wondered if they had finally identified their victim. In addition, the Rolex helped the investigators establish the date of death. With the power reserve on that type of Rolex known to be 48 hours, the police simply subtracted the watch's hours of time reserve from the date displayed on the timepiece when it had been found. According to the watch, their victim, Ronald Platt, had died on July 20th, 1996. Armed with both the dead man's name and date of death, the authorities could begin a more in-depth investigation into Ronald's death. The investigators found Ronald's old friend David Davis's cell phone number listed on a reference letter Ronald had used to secure his apartment rental. When the officers called Davis, he was extremely helpful. He even voluntarily stopped by the police station to answer questions. He told the officers that the last he had heard, Ronald had gone off to France to set up an electrical business. He had not seen or heard from him since June. Davis also told the police that the tattoo on Ronald's hand was not a cluster of stars. Rather, it was a maple leaf to commemorate his love of Canada. Even though Davis did not seem very shocked or upset about his friend's death, or ask too many questions about what had happened, Davis's story did not raise any alarm bells. After his initial interview, the investigators considered him nothing but a helpful witness. However, that changed when the Essex police attempted to contact Davis a short time later to ask him some additional questions. When an officer drove out to Davis's home in the quaint village of Woodham Walter to get a written statement, he accidentally went to a neighbor's house and not Davis's. The neighbors, an elderly couple named Frank and Audrey, informed the investigator that the man who lived next door was named Ronald Platt, not David Davis. 
They said it was Ronald who lived at Little London Farm with his much younger wife and two small children. And Ronald owned a yacht named The Lady Jane, which he kept moored in Devon. By accidentally stopping at the wrong house, the officer had discovered that Davis had been passing himself off as Ronald. Needless to say, this fortunate accident put the man pretending to be Ronald under the microscope. Had he murdered Ronald to assume his identity? After some more digging, the investigators learned that Ronald had been paying Davis's bills for the last three years, with the payments continuing even after Ronald was dead. Although they knew they could easily arrest Davis for check fraud, the police were sure there was more to the story. And they were right. They uncovered that the real Ronald had met Davis through Ronald's then-girlfriend Elaine, and that both Ronald and Elaine had been employed by Davis as directors of his company. They also checked out the neighbor's story, confirming that Davis did in fact own a sailboat that was moored in Devon. The marina where the boat was kept was located only a few miles from where the fishermen had netted Ronald's body. The police then checked Davis's cell phone records and realized calls were made from his cell phone from the area where Ronald's body had been found. When the investigators were able to locate witnesses who saw Davis and Ronald together in the Devon area shortly before Ronald's death, they changed their charges against Davis from check fraud to murder. On October 31, 1997, the police arrested Davis on suspicion of murder of Ronald Platt. Davis did attempt to make a break for it before being taken into custody. While the police were getting into position to arrest him, Davis ordered a taxi and fled. The police gave chase and forced the taxi off the road. A policeman approached the vehicle with his gun drawn and pointed it squarely at Davis's head, demanding that he exit the taxi. Davis was finally going to have to answer for Ronald's murder. At the same time Davis was arrested, investigators raided the Davis home and arrested his 21-year-old wife, Noelle, who had been at home caring for their two young daughters. The arresting officers allowed Noelle to pack a diaper bag but they caught her stuffing much more than baby supplies into the bag. Instead, she had filled the bag with 4,000 pounds in cash and five gold bars. When the investigators searched the home, they recovered a treasure trove of evidence. 15 gold bars, each worth over 25,000 pounds, thousands of pounds in different currencies, and expensive paintings. According to the investigating officers, in case anything went wrong with his plan, Davis was converting a lot of his cash into gold bars and secreting them so that if he had to do a runner, he would have had something to survive on in case his identity had blown out. For the next month, Davis was held in custody while the authorities built a case against him. At first, he seemed helpful, but when the tape recorder was turned on, 
he suddenly refused to cooperate and no longer answered any questions. The detective had observed, Davis was as cool as a cucumber, and he never admitted a thing. Despite his silence, the evidence mounting against Davis was overwhelming. Using the stored GPS data from Davis's yacht, the authorities were able to plot coordinates that proved the Lady Jane was at sea on July 20th, the day Ronald was killed. The boat's GPS recorded signals from three satellites that triangulated where the boat was positioned at sea. Moreover, when its GPS was switched off, the vessel was just 3.8 nautical miles from where Ronald's body had been found. When a forensic team examined the boat's cabin, they found cushions that had been splattered with blood and head hair. DNA tests proved that the blood and hair was Ronald's. A sport nautique store bag was also discovered in the boat with Ronald's fingerprint on it. The police also seized many documents from Davis's home. Among the documents was a small receipt that listed seven items purchased from the sport nautique store in Dartmouth. Not only did this line up with the type of bag found on Davis's yacht, but also one of the seven items on the receipt was a 10-pound zinc plow anchor. This discovery caused the investigators to re-question the fisherman that had found Ronald's body. And sure enough, he had found an anchor caught in the netting at the same time he had dredged up Ronald's body. It was becoming more and more clear that Davis had weighted Ronald's body down with the anchor, and when the netting hit the body, it had come loose. The police wanted to examine the anchor, but the fisherman explained he had given the anchor to a friend who had passed it on to his mom to sell at a public market. Luckily, the anchor didn't sell, and the police were able to retrieve it from the mom's garage. Forensic tests matched zinc traces from the anchor to deposits on Ronald's belt, and the testing also found traces of leather on the anchor that matched Ronald's belt. Additionally, the bruises on Ronald's hip and leg perfectly aligned to where the anchor would have banged into him had it been affixed to his belt when he was thrown over into the sea. After spending about a month gathering all this evidence, the police turned their attention to Davis's wife, Noelle. They were growing more and more suspicious of the age difference between Davis and his wife. In their minds, a 30-year age gap was unusual, and it was out of the ordinary for a man in his 50s to have fathered a toddler and an infant. The investigators' suspicions grew when they located the children's birth certificates. They listed Ronald Platt as the father and Elaine Boys as the mother. Noelle stated that she had lied on the birth certificates because when she was pregnant, she required medical attention and had counted on Elaine's medical cards to get treatment. According to Noelle, she had lied on the children's birth certificates so she could access free health care. 
Thinking there was more to the story, the authorities pressed Noel. How had she met Davis? How long had they been together? Finally, a distraught Noel exclaimed that Davis was actually her father, and she refused to discuss the identity of the father of her children. Police and social services workers were shocked. All signs pointed to her children being the product of an incestuous relationship with her father. Just when police thought that nothing could surprise them anymore about the case, they were hit with another bombshell. After comparing Davis's fingerprints to wanted fugitives, they hit on a match. David Davis was actually Albert Johnson Walker, Canada's most wanted man and number four on Interpol's list of international fugitives. Albert Walker was born on August 9, 1945, in Paris, a town located in the province of Ontario, Canada, that is famous for its annual fall fair on the Labor Day weekend, as well as being voted the prettiest little town in Canada by Harrowsmith magazine. Walker and his five sisters were raised in a quiet, quaint community, which in 1945 had a population of less than five thousand people. Things took a turn for Walker in high school, and people started to consider him a troubled youth. After he dropped out of high school, he worked a string of dead-end jobs. But his luck changed when Walker met Barbara MacDonald in 1968 at the University of Waterloo. She was from a close-knit and devout Scottish Presbyterian farming family. Walker was working in the library, and Barbara was a student. Walker proposed to Barbara after knowing her for just three weeks. And after a whirlwind three-month romance, they were married in the university chapel on October 25th. After living for a while in Scotland, the Walkers returned to Ontario in 1971 and settled in Barbara's hometown, Air, Ontario. Although Walker quickly found his place in the church community, serving as a Sunday school teacher and church elder, he still struggled to find the right fit career-wise. In the decade after he was married, Walker worked as a manager trainee at Zeller's, a laborer for a feed supply company, a cattle herder, and a life insurance salesman. His brother-in-law, Bob McDonald noted that there was always some excuse why the job wasn't any good. Even though they had trouble paying the bills, the Walkers had four children, three daughters, Jillian, Sheena, and Heather, and a son named Duncan. Finally, after working his way through numerous short-term jobs, Walker got himself a job at a trust company as a bank teller and tax return filer. After two years, Walker decided he enjoyed working with money and wanted to be his own boss. So he quit his job at the trust company 
and opened his own financial advisory and bookkeeping business called Walker's Financial Services. Walker's Financial Services expanded rapidly after taking over a company called Oxford Bookkeeping Systems of Woodstock. In December of 1980, Walker also diversified by selling mutual funds, investing in mortgages, and providing advice on wealth management. In September of 1982, Walker formed United Canvest Corporation and registered it in the Cayman Islands. In his new promotional material, he promised considerable tax savings. Walker was always on the lookout for expansion opportunities, and by the late 1980s, his company had nine branches throughout southwestern Ontario and dozens of employees. Those who knew Walker well said he changed considerably in 1989 after two couples that considered him a personal friend entrusted him with $8.7 million they had made by selling off farming properties north of Toronto. In a sworn statement, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police noted that after being entrusted with these funds, Walker began to travel extensively throughout Canada, the United States, the Caribbean, Mexico, Britain, and Switzerland. He also began to have extramarital affairs, although at work, keeping up the appearance of being a happily married family man. Walker purchased a Jaguar, and his taste in clothing, restaurants, and the good life was on the rise. To no one's surprise, this change in behavior caused Walker's marriage to fall apart. In May of 1990, he went to Switzerland on a supposed business trip with an employee he was having an affair with. When he returned home and was confronted by his wife, Walker admitted that he was having an affair, but told Barbara that he would end it. Although the Walkers tried to save their marriage, they eventually separated. While he took his three youngest children to Europe on a holiday, Barbara had her lawyer draw up a statement of claim seeking custody of the four children, support payments, and exclusive possession of the family home. After he returned from England, Walker filed a counterclaim and fought for custody of all four children. The court heard how Walker and Barbara had been experiencing marital problems for approximately five years, and that they had been seeing a marriage counselor for about 18 months before deciding to go their separate ways. Walker also presented handwritten notes from all of his children that asked the court to please let them live with their father. His daughter Sheena's letter specifically outlined three reasons why she wanted to live with her father. She stated that by living with her father, she would enjoy more freedom, more affection, and fewer disagreements. Sheena wrote, I don't feel that the relationship between my mother and I contains enough love and affection for us to be together on a daily basis. However, my father shows me a lot of affection on a regular basis, and we are very close. 
On August 31, 1990, Judge James Kent awarded Walker custody of his two older daughters, Jillian and Sheena. However, the two younger children, Duncan and Heather, were ordered to remain with Barbara, and Walker had to pay her $300 per month in support. Even though their marriage was over, the problems between Walker and Barbara continued. For instance, on November 4th, Walker forced his way into the family home. In fear for the safety of both her and her children, Barbara called the police. As a result, Walker was charged with forcible entry. Barbara also told family friends that he once threatened to blow her away. Regardless of his reckless behavior, what happened next, no one saw coming. On November 28, 1990, Walker booked two first-class tickets from Toronto to London, and a week later, Walker and his 15-year-old daughter Sheena left for a two-week skiing trip to Europe. They were not seen again for six years. It turned out, Walker had defrauded about 70 Canadian clients of approximately $3.2 million and had perpetrated over 70 counts of fraud. Walker became Canada's most wanted man and number four on Interpol's list of international fugitives. The community of Paris, Ontario, was stunned by his crimes. They had a difficult time reconciling the well-dressed, charming man who sat in the same church pew every Sunday with his beautiful family, with the man who had swindled millions from innocent people, abducted his underage daughter, and fled the country. While Walker was busy starting a new life overseas, Barbara hired private investigators to search for her daughter, Sheena. She was sure Walker had abducted her daughter. Missing persons posters were circulated internationally, but Sheena was nowhere to be found. During this time, Barbara learned that Walker had taken out a $90,000 second mortgage on the family home shortly before they separated. Barbara also discovered that Walker had helped his daughter Jillian get breast implants and their daughter Sheena a prescription for birth control pills. Finally, due to Walker's absence and disturbing behavior, Barbara was granted a divorce in early 1993. After leaving Canada, Walker resurfaced in Harrogate in North Yorkshire, England, posing as a wealthy semi-retired businessman named David Davis, an identity borrowed from one of his many Canadian fraud victims. Before long, the con man was up to his old tricks again, and he launched a financial company called Cavendish Corporation. He also introduced his daughter Sheena as his pretty young wife, and the addition of two daughters in the mid-1990s provided even more credibility to their relationship. In early 1991, after less than a year in England, Walker, still posing as Davis, stumbled upon Ronald Platt and Elaine Boyce, over the next few years, Walker forged a close relationship with Ronald and Elaine, even making them directors of his company. 
feeling that his somewhat flimsy false identity had run its course. Walker assumed Ronald's identity when Ronald headed back to Canada to forge a new life for himself abroad. However, when Ronald returned from Canada only two years later, Walker knew that two Ronald Platts was one too many. So on the morning of Saturday, July 20th, 1996, Walker took his friend Ronald out on his yacht, knocked him unconscious with a blow to the head, fixed an anchor to his belt, and threw him overboard to drown in the English Channel. After Walker's arrest in October of 1996, a 50-member team of detectives expended a tremendous amount of time, energy, and money on the case. To assemble all the evidence needed for conviction, the team took 617 statements, seized 1,150 potential exhibits, and entered 480 documents as evidence. Numerous experts lined up to testify about the hair and blood found on Walker's boat, the Rolex, the yacht's GPS coordinates, the anchor used to drown Ronald, the cell phone data, and what seemed like endless financial data, all of which pointed to Walker's guilt. And to no one's surprise, Walker pleaded not guilty in light of the tremendous amount of evidence to the contrary. Even while he was in custody, awaiting trial, Walker managed to con people. He sold the Lady Jane to an inmate for 400 pounds, even though it was being held by the police as evidence. Plus, a bail application was filed on Walker's behalf by two prison officers who were convinced that he was an innocent good guy. Walker carried his confidence into the trial, where he made the mistake of taking the stand. He was quite confident that because there was no witness to the crime, he could convince the jury he was innocent. He thought he could easily mislead the jury like he had everyone else. Sheena, however, who had been released and allowed to return to her mother in Canada on December 9, 1996, shortly after her father's arrest, made sure Walker was unable to con the jury. The then 22-year-old had flown back to England to testify against her father, the man who had stolen her innocence and adolescence. During Sheena's testimony, she revealed that she had no idea Ronald had been in town while her and Walker had been holidaying in Devon. The prosecution used this evidence to prove that Ronald's murder had been premeditated. Also, Sheena could not give her father an alibi for the day of the murder. Rather, she told the court that on July 20th, 1996, her father had been out on the Lady Jane and had returned home late and wet. After Sheena's testimony, there was little doubt left that Walker had the opportunity to kill Ronald. In June of 1998, a jury of eight women and four men deliberated for only two hours before finding Walker guilty of murder. Passing the mandatory life sentence, Justice Butterfield told Walker, It was in my judgment a callous, premeditated killing designed to eliminate a man you had used for your own selfish ends. The killing was carefully planned and cunningly executed 
with chilling efficiency. You are a plausible, intelligent, and ruthless man who poses a serious threat to anyone who stands in your way. Walker displayed little emotion as the verdict was delivered and the sentence passed down. Although Walker has admitted that he is a liar and a thief, he has always categorically denied any involvement in Ronald's murder. In 2005, Walker was transferred to a Canadian prison to serve out the remainder of his sentence. A spokesman with Foreign Affairs Canada stated, Mr. Walker had been approved for a transfer to Canada under the Transfer of Offenders Act. Shortly after arriving back in Canada, Walker was convicted of 20 fraud and theft charges and sentenced to four years for fraud and one year concurrent for violations of Canada's Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. When Kingston Penitentiary closed in 2013, Walker was transferred to an unnamed prison in British Columbia to serve out his sentence. Although he applied for parole in 2015, he later abandoned the bid. When thinking back about the case, D.S. Phil Sincock, one of the key investigators who worked to put Walker behind bars, said, I think this was the most unusual case I have ever had. It was a real, almost Agatha Christie storyline. It's one of those cases that comes along only once in your career. If you wrote a fictional script with the ins and outs that happened in this case, nobody would believe it. It would seem too far-fetched. The hard-to-believe particulars of the Walker case have resulted in numerous books, movies, and television shows about the con man. However, what often happens is that Walker is the focus of attention, and the many victims he left in his wake are forgotten. Walker's daughter Sheena had a long struggle to build a normal life for her and her daughters. After being abducted by her father, brainwashed, and likely subjected to years of incest. Many people in England who saw Sheena and her dad living as husband and wife noticed that Sheena rarely spoke and always looked to Walker for approval. Sheena spent years as a victim, dominated by an evil con artist. She has explained multiple times that her father manipulated her and lied to her just like everybody else. Sheena was devastated when her father's bid to return to Canada was approved. She felt that he was a threat and that she needed to protect her family from him. She was especially afraid that her father might attempt to worm his way back into her life. All Sheena wanted was closure and a sense of safety, but instead she said, she just felt powerless in the whole situation. She explained that no one reached out to ask her how she would feel having her father return to Canada. When asked how she felt about her father, Sheena said, I believe he's a dangerous individual. I am scared of him and feel very threatened by his presence here in Canada. I don't want any contact with him. 
I want to move on with the rest of my life and have some closure on this. Walker's actions also damaged the lives of dozens of investors. Many of them lost their life savings. Eric Winter, a 76-year-old retired salesman from Brantford, Ontario, related how in the 1990s, his late wife Myrtle sold her tax and bookkeeping business to Walker, even turning down her nephew's $100,000 offer. However, Myrtle never received a cent of the money promised by Walker and had to declare bankruptcy. Her husband remembered that. She was very upset, he said. I used to wake up in the middle of the night and she'd be on the side of the bed crying her heart out. Some of Walker's fraud victims had nervous breakdowns and one person he defrauded even hanged himself. Others thought of the long-term impact Walker's actions would have on their family. One elderly couple only managed to recover a tiny fraction of what they had invested in the 1980s. Although they believed Walker deserved to be in prison, the pair noted that it would not begin to make up for what he had done. They said Walker had permanently changed their lives and that the damage continues, not just for ourselves, but it will go on for our children and our grandchildren. The pain that Walker had caused his victims has had a lasting impact. Finally, when considering Walker's victims, it is crucial not to forget the often overlooked Ronald Platt. His longtime girlfriend Elaine never forgot that seeking justice for Ronald was important. When Walker was convicted of Ronald's murder, Elaine punched the air in triumph. She was overjoyed that the man she knew to be evil was finally going to pay for his crimes. Thank God, she proclaimed, break out the champagne. She hoped that now that justice was served, Walker's many victims could slowly start to rebuild their lives. Although this case explores Ronald's heartbreaking murder, he often becomes little more than a footnote in Albert Walker's story. Ronald, however, was much more than a footnote. He was a kind, gentle, trusting man who was eager to help his friend who needed a hand moving his boat. Although he may have been shy and a little gullible, he was brave enough to follow his dreams and try to build a life for himself in Canada. Yes, he may not have been rich, but he was willing to work hard when given the opportunity and generously shared what little he had with others. Men like Ronald Platt should not be forgotten. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes.
And we also have some exciting news. Christine has decided to bring her website, The True Crime Files, to life in a new podcast. And here's a preview. Hi, I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to The True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run